everyone. We are back with another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It's been a little while, but I am glad to be here again chatting with you, and I can promise a great slate of episodes rolling out for the rest of the year. Today's guest is Tim Wright, a longtime Strong Towns member and co-founder of a Strong Towns local group called Reform Shreveport, which is based in Shreveport, Louisiana. Tim is an engineer who joined with some of his friends and neighbors to create this group out of a desire to make the best of the community's assets, focus on the potential of Shreveport, and help young people like himself see that it's a great place to live and stay. I think that's something that probably a lot of people would love to see happen in their own cities. Reform Shreveport has been very focused on action. They've cleaned up parks, they've piloted bike lanes, and they even made an interactive map after a major storm threatened Shreveport's water supply for thousands of residents. And you're going to hear Tim talk more about that in a second. He and his colleagues are responding to the needs of their city and also partnering with local government and other groups to get things done. That's been particularly important in an economically divided city, which is something that I also think a lot of people are going to relate to wherever you live. This is a pretty sadly common experience. So we talk a lot about Reform Shreveport in this episode, but at the end, we also chatted a bit about Tim's new experience of homeownership with his wife and why they chose to convert part of their house into an Airbnb. So that's kind of an extra tidbit at the end. Hope you enjoy this interview with Strong Towns member Tim Wright. Tim Wright, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. It's good to talk to you today. Of course. Great to talk to you too, Rachel. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your community? Also, like, are you originally from there or if not, what led you to move there? Yeah, so um, I live in Treeport right now. I am not originally from here. I'm originally from the Dallas area, from one of the suburbs. And um, Treeport is a a great place. Um, Since I've lived here, I've really enjoyed it. We've got um, the Louisiana culture, but we're also um, pretty close to the Texas border. We're in the northwest corner of the state. So we've got some Louisiana culture, but we kind of have the a uh, little bit of East Texas culture as well. So, um, but yeah, it's a it's a great town. Um, sm- uh, it's a smaller city, about two hundred thousand population. And uh, I moved here about six years ago, I believe. Uh, after I graduated from college, I went to a, a small engineering school in in East Texas. So it's just an hour up the road from there, and um, moved here after I graduated. And I've really gotten plugged in, and I really love it. So um, it's been really good. Awesome. And you work as an engineer now, is that right? I do. Yeah. Um, I work for Virginity, um, which I know that uh, Chuck is very familiar with and uh, talks about from time to time, but I've been with them for about three years doing a lot of exciting site development stuff. And I get my hands into some planning projects every once in a while, but mostly, mostly engineering. Yeah, and I know another uh, big component of your life in Shreveport is the organization that you helped um, found, Reform Shreveport. How did that group come about? And was there like a particular challenge or problem that kind of inspired you to take that step and bring these folks together? Yeah, so when I moved here, I mean, Shreveport was very different from where I grew up in Dallas. You know, I, I grew up in a suburb and, you know, my parents had 
one of the first maybe 10 or 20 homes in their their subdivision um, about, you know, on the edge of town, about 30 minutes away from downtown Dallas. And um, when I moved to Shreveport, I think just the fact that it was so different made made me really um, intrigued and interested in Shreveport. You know, I really saw I really saw a need to uh, to capitalize on some of the just existing um, infrastructure and buildings and community that was here already. And that's kind of where the, the name Reform Shreveport came about. Um, and just focusing on uh, on a need to kind of uh, appreciate what was already here. And I had a lot of conversations with, with young people my age that were, they were looking to move because they were looking you know, for amenities that you might find in a, in a bigger city. But, um, I just really saw a lot of, saw a lot of potential, um, in the city. And so I, uh, met lots of people, went to lots of community meetings and bike planning meetings and all that. And I met, uh, my now colleagues in Reform Shreveport. Um, and we got started with, uh, with a visit from Chuck and it kind of rolled on from there. But yeah, it was really, my emphasis really in the beginning was just how can we find ways to to capitalize and reform, so to speak, the the assets that we already had. Yeah, I like that. Who are the people that you ended up coming together with to form this group? Yeah, so um, Lovette Fuller was, I met her first. Um, at the time, she was a librarian and had been involved a little bit um, with our Metropolitan Planning Commission. And so I became friends with her and um, also met Chris Lyon. He's um, he's a filmmaker and he, for a while, he ran a publication called Heliopolis where I really started writing and uh, sharing, just sharing some of my thoughts. And then Luke Lee also, um, he was our third co-founder or fourth, I guess, if you include me. Um, he uh, owned his own business doing graphic design and a lot of other cool construction type things. And so you know, the four of us kind of put our heads together and um, we started Reform Treeport. Very cool. And I did not know that Lavette used to be a librarian. People in the Strong Towns audience have probably come across Lavette. We've, you know, she's been on webcasts and um, written for us and things like that. But um, she's a city councilor now and I did not know that was her history. Very cool. So what are some of the projects that you all have worked on together and what's kind of your focus we have a couple of focuses, but um, we really just want to start projects that really um, that kind of spur action in our downtown and core neighborhoods um, that get people involved and that get people making just a, a really physical and visible um, change to our city. But while we're doing that, we also like to discuss some of the bigger the bigger issues and um, you know whether it's while we're out on a project discussing kind of what some of the key um, policy issues are facing our city. We do that. We also, um, we've had a variety of, of speakers. We've had, um, we've had Chuck, we've had Joe Minikazi. Um, we've had, we brought in Cultivate Collaborative before I started working for Virginity. You know, we like to make people um, aware of different um, issues that way as well. Those are kind of our two main activities that we do as an organization. Yeah, that seems like a powerful combination of like taking action that you can really materially see the change you're making, but then also using that as a space to discuss the bigger issues in your city. I know that some of the Strong Towns groups that I've 
talked with um, have kind of struggled with momentum because they're really fired up about ideas um, and want to like get people together to talk about things, but then don't always know like, okay, how do we actually take action? Um, and how do we like keep people engaged through that action? Because there's only so much you can do by, you know, sitting around and talking about things. Although that conversation and learning is, is an important part of the process. Yeah, we definitely want to be a group that um, that's always focused on action. And, you know, <laughs> depending on the, you know, our own personal circumstances, that can be hard, you know, but I think, I think when it comes down to it, we understand that um, that action always, that always inspires us and gets that momentum going. Um, and I mean, I think that's one of our core values as an organization and the people that we partner with is that just believing that it, it starts with action. It starts with doing something and, you know, you may, you may figure out later on that maybe you need to adjust a little bit and, and maybe take a different um, approach, but it always starts with that action. You can't, you can't know, know what you need to adjust doing until you actually do something. So that's definitely a core value of our organization. How have you built a coalition of people that are involved in your work? Um, whether that's like individual volunteers or like larger partner organizations, how do you bring people together and who are some of those important players besides your, your core group of founders? You know, we've really just individually tried to leverage to leverage our our connections that we have. Um, there's a local um, foundation called Community Foundation that's um, donated to um, some of our our speakers. We've just really grown some relationships with um, existing neighborhood organizations. Most of the time, our projects they start with with really engaging those groups. Um, there's a Highland neighborhood organization that uh, that's been real involved in our Highland Park project. We've been doing a, a project in Caddo Heights, which is another uh, core neighborhood that um, we've gotten to know a lot of individuals in in that organization. And and again, we really just try and utilize our existing connections. Um, you know, Lavette being a city council person, she has a lot of um, connections in different neighborhoods, especially if it's part of her district. Um, and if it's not, um, then we, Chris and Luke, they have a lot of connections as well through their, their businesses, um, uh, work. And, you know, I, being an engineer, I have some connections in the engineering world and people, you know, at the city that might be able to help provide some resources, um, for us and our projects. The city has been, um, especially the parks department and property standards, and our transit department have been have been big uh, partners in our work as well. Um, and I think we really just anytime we can find common ground with an organization that can be used to you know help leverage that into making our projects better. That's really the way we kind of built those things because I think in some in some sense um, your organizations that you partner with they have to you have to have some some sort of utilitarian value to each other. Um, you have to have some type of overlap that brings you together and can get you both um, working in the right direction. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like those connections with the city are especially valuable if you want to, you know, make long-term change in your city. How did you go about building those? Was that mostly through the vet's role as city councilor or, you know, do people show up at your events or... Um, how did that come about? As far as the city goes, a lot of just my involvement and being involved in the bike community, um, I already met some of those um, people at the city that 
had an had an interest or or worked um, in some capacity with bike infrastructure issues. Yeah, Lovette has a lot of um, connections now with the city. A lot of our connections they even just kind of um, grow organically through our projects. Sometimes we'll we'll contact different people before we do a project, but then other times we just you know we know we have to go out and do something, and then um, the connection with the city might come a little bit later when they they see what we're doing and um, they'll kind of reach out to us and just ask, you know, how they can better help us or serve us. So sometimes it happens after we, (laughs) after we get, get going on a project. What are some of the projects and outcomes that you're most proud of over the last few years? I think most recently our Caddo Heights project has been really, um, has been really fun. Um, It's been really fun to get to know a different, a different part of the city. Currently in Treeport, we have a real big divide um, on two sides of an interstate that runs through town. Um, and it, they're two very, uh, very different parts of the city. And so for me personally, it's been really um, enriching to um, get to know people in this Caddo Heights neighborhood and just see the, see the way in which our work has been, has been impacting those communities. I think uh, they don't um, feel like they get a lot of, uh, a lot of attention and investment from the city and and it's it's really cool the way that our work has been um you know just over the series of we we're doing we were really involved last spring and we've um, done a few more things this fall but you know just being a consistent presence in that city and um i mentioned that property standards has been a um, has been a partner of ours our this caddo heights project has been we've been able to kind of document where property standards has been an issue and um, helping the citizens of that community address it because oftentimes issues like property standards are only addressed where there's kind of a big um, outcry from people that um, already have the connections in the city or have the leverage. But a lot of these communities um, don't necessarily have that leverage. And so we've been able to to help that community kind of document um where they have problems, it was kind of intense, but we learned that one of the streets like had, you know, a bunch of uh, drug dealers living in a home. And so, you know, we kind of, it wasn't our intention, but we kind of helped solve that problem and on that particular street. And so um, it's just, it's just amazing what, you know, what can happen when you give people some attention and um, just help them out and go step by step. So that's, that Kettle Heights project has been a really exciting one recently. Yeah. So what's next with that? We've done a lot of uh, litter uh, cleanup. We've talked about focusing on just some more um, seeing if if cameras can help kind of help with the litter problem. Because one thing we've noticed is that um, an area over time, it just it gets dirty again. And so just finding new ways to, um, you know, we don't want to be <laughs> surveilling every neighborhood, but just understanding, you know, that can be another piece of data and helping us figure out like why, um, why some of these issues are occurring. And, you know, if we can have a piece of data that helps, um, that helps the city deal with, you know, a littering problem, that's kind of a big, that's a big issue around here. And, um, a lot of organizations, uh, are kind of helping to tackle. So, um, we've discussed trying to get some more pieces of that puzzle and trying to figure out where, that litter is, you know, why people are dumping and maybe they need, maybe they need some education and figuring out, okay, this is where I can, 
you know, legally dump, or this is how, this is the process the city has to, you know, picking up large items that don't fit in the trash, in the trash. Um, really, <laughs> really exciting stuff, but, you know, it makes a big difference uh, when it comes to quality of life. So that's kind of our, that's kind of our next, next steps in that project. Yeah, very true. Um, you mentioned data and I wanted to ask about, um, I know that earlier this year when you guys went through a serious winter storm, you guys like, I'm assuming just kind of jumped on this and made an outage map. How did that come about? What, what happened there? This was in February. And uh, just on a personal note, we had just moved into a house. We'd been there for three weeks and we had the worst winter storm like in a long time. We got so much snow, probably two feet of snow and ice in, in the span of a week, maybe. Which is and, very unusual for your area, yes. right? Yeah, very unusual. We're, you know, we're lucky, you know, we'll get maybe a snow that will be two inches, maybe once every five years. So it's very, very unlikely. Um, but this, this winter storm, it caused a lot of issues in our, in our water system and, um, lots of water main breaks. Um, our, our pipes, uh, down here in the South are not as deep as they are in the North. So that means that, um, a similar temperature will have a worse effect on our pipes down here. And so, um, there was large, large portions of the city that were without, without water for, for weeks. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was really crazy, but Luke Lee, he, you know, him and Chris have been doing a lot with, um, Google maps and we had, we had played around with some ideas, um, and, and we were just stuck at home. You know, we were all stuck at home during, um, this crisis. And so, um, they put together a map where, um, it was done all through Google. So we had a Google survey, um, that we put out to all of our networks. And so respondents could, could state their address and they could, um, choose from three or four different options of what was, what was wrong with their water and what, what level it was at. Those survey entries went into, um, a map. And so it, the map just had a bunch of dots, um, depending on your address that, um, that kind of gave a visual representation of, um, of where, which parts of the city were, um, were hit harder than others. And, um, so yeah, that's what we did. It came together really in the span of a couple of days. We just, <laughs> we were, like I said, we were all stuck at home and, and trying to find a way that people could, um, well, number one, have a better understanding of that they weren't the only ones. Um, I think there's an easy, it's easy um, on a citizen level for you to, for you to look at an issue and think that it's, <laughs> this is the only problem that applies to you. But with our map, we kind of were able to get people to look um, at the bigger picture and see, oh, wow, like this is, this is an issue across the city. And um, we're able to help people kind of engage and see the progress that was made, you know, over time, most probably about 60 or 70% of the city lost, lost their water within the first couple of days of this. And slowly over time, once the ground thawed, um, we were able to, um, the city was able to, you know, fix, fix those issues. And, and over time, over that couple of weeks, you could see, you could see our map and how, you know, what was once reds and yellow dots, um, kind of slowly turned to green as people, um, turn their pressure on and the green dots kind of showed where people were getting their, their water back on. Was the city using it to like 
figure out who needed help or were, were like neighbors using it to know like, oh, I should, you know, let my neighbor use my, use my water since I have it and they don't? Or like, what was the, um, were there some of those like tangible outcomes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, you know, early on, we kind of shared our data with the city and, you know, we gave them a copy of all the data that we were, that we were gathering. Um, you know, they have, they have some methods to, to do that themselves too, but we kind of had a one-stop shop for, you know, for all of, all of the data associated with these water outages. Um, but yeah, I think people really, um, you know, citizens really kind of notice, notice that and, you know, I think we already, one thing I love about Louisiana is we already have a culture that kind of knows how to respond to a crisis. And, you know, you've probably seen stories of the Cajun Navy whenever we have a hurricane down in the southern portion of the state, you know, the whole state comes together and helps each other out. So I think we already have um, some of that culture ingrained, but I think our map also, we heard lots of people tell us that it really helped them um, you know, help them connect with other people and just um, grow a community that was, you know, that could help each other during a crisis like that. The power of data. Very cool. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you mentioned briefly that you had recently bought a house and I want to ask a little bit about that, switching gears here. What is it like? I don't know if you're like a first time homeowner, but um, if so, like what, what's it been like to be a homeowner? And I know that you guys decided to Airbnb a part of your house? Has that been a helpful process to like, you know, be able to afford uh, the home more easily and all that? Yes, we are first time home buyers. We got buried about a year ago. So we, um, we moved in. Yeah, we were first time home buyers and it's been good so far. Um, definitely owning a home makes you have a new appreciation for people that, <laughs> for people that care enough about a community to you know, to be in old housing stock. I think I definitely understand why, (laughs) why the growth Ponzi scheme is so, um, is so easy for a lot of people because, you know, in a lot of ways it is easier to, to be in, in a shiny and new (laughs) kind of house. We really like our house. It's, uh, it was built in the fifties. And so, um, it, uh, it's been really good for us. It's been renovated several times. Um, and yeah, there's a portion of our house that we really didn't, you know, we really didn't think about doing an Airbnb when we bought it, but it really, um, it really kind of worked out pretty well. And so, um, for about three or four months, we've been doing an Airbnb out of kind of the back part of our home. It's got a bedroom in a, in a uh, den area. Um, but that's been, that's been really interesting. I mean, I think it's been, yeah, a, another source of income that, you know, we can use our existing house. Um, and a lot of people appreciate it too. I mean, we're definitely cheaper than a hotel. So it's been interesting to kind of, um, to kind of think about that from the, from the other side of, in the Southern part of our state, New Orleans has had actually an issue with Airbnbs and, you know, too much of their city has gone to Airbnbs. And so they're struggling with how to, you know, how to have more people in the neighborhood permanently instead of, um, people that are just there for a couple days in an Airbnb. Um, but for us, we, you know, we we found that we really like to, to get to know people and, you know, we kind of, <laughs> we like to always share what we love about Shreveport too, to those people that are, you know, that are in town temporarily. So 
for us, it's all, it's also been kind of a cool tool to, you know, advertise your city a little bit and let them know what restaurants to go to. And so in that sense, I'm like, man, this is like, this is a real good opportunity as well. You guys are doing what, I mean, I think from what I understand about the history of Airbnb, like you're doing like what the original intention was, which is like, oh, you have a spare room, rent it out before all the huge corporations took it over and like, you know, just bought these houses and filled them with tourists. So I also am a first time homeowner as of May. So I'm, I'm interested in these stories about people's experiences. Sounds like you guys weathered that storm. So that's a huge test. Yeah. How has it been for y'all? Is it, you have, all have an old house too? Yeah, it's uh, built in 1913. Um, so yeah, similar to you, like if we wanted to be in, you know, a walkable neighborhood, it's pretty much older houses. Uh, I grew up in an older house. So luckily it's it's very solid and, you know, it's had some updates over the years. So it's not like original windows or anything. It's It's worked out so far. Yep. Home, owning a home is a lot of, <laughs> it's definitely a lot of work. Like I didn't, I didn't realize how much that would be, but I mean, for us, I know we have having an Airbnb has allowed us to, you know, make some, make some needed up, you know, repairs to our house. So we have that little bit of extra, you know, extra money to do those, those repairs for an older house that it may have taken us a, a little bit longer to get to otherwise. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. Benefit too. I should have asked at the start, how did you originally get connected with Strong Towns? I know that you've been connected and a member for a while. Um, do you remember like what first got you plugged in? You know, I think I read some articles about um, from Chuck just about different engineering issues. Um, you know, I think I, I think the main thing that resonated with me was just um, the approach that, you know, Chuck as an engineer had um, to a lot of these issues. Um, both my parents were engineers, so I was kind of, um, you know, I was, was kind of set up for that career, I guess, um, by the fact of them being engineers. But I'd always had kind of an interest in, in more than just the math and science, but the, you know, the tangible impacts that um, that engineering may have had on um, communities as a whole. And so um, I think Strong Towns was, you know, they kind of operated in that space that really um, that understood a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the aspects of, you know, engineering and city building and planning and, and everything, but, but in a way that kind of, it wasn't just about that. It was about, um, you know, what are, you know, what are the outcomes that this, this infrastructure and engineering is, is producing in our everyday lives and taking a big picture view. And if the outcomes aren't the right thing, then maybe we need to shift how we approach it. So, that was kind of really what drew me to Strong Towns. So to close this out, I always ask, what advice do you have for other people that might want to take action to make their town stronger, whether they're just trying to do like a bottom-up type thing, like picking up litter, or whether they want to start a whole group like you've done with Reform Shreveport? What are some first steps for people? I would say just start with something that you're that you're interested in. I mentioned that I was involved in the bike community and, you know, I grew up mountain biking, but, um, have, you know, picked up road biking a little bit and, um, I'll commute to commute to my office by bus and bike. And, um, I bought an electric bike here a, a couple months ago. So biking was always something that I really, um, enjoyed. And, you know, it turned out that that was the, 
that was kind of the way that I met met everybody. Um, that and just um, commenting on Facebook, <laughs> funny enough, about uh, about other engineering issues in our local community. So if you just kind of follow your your interests and find people that are interested in that same thing, I think that can be a really good. It can be a really good jumping off point um, um, to get more involved in your community and. If you love something, then you'll you'll stick with it as well. So, um, yeah, well said. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tim, for taking time to be on the show and share some about what you're doing in Shreveport. It's been great to talk with you. Of course, great to talk with you too, Rachel. Thanks. All right. So it has been a while since I've had the chance to get an episode out to you all. There's a lot to catch up on. First. Make sure to keep an eye on our events calendar. We are traveling all over the place. I was just in Wichita, Kansas with Chuck uh, as he did a series of events there. Chuck is going to be in Oregon soon, California, New Haven, Connecticut, Arizona, San Diego, a whole bunch of stuff, as well as some virtual events too. So go to strongtowns.org events if you want to check if we're coming to your area and then also you can just sign up for our email list and you'll automatically be alerted about that i also want to let you know about a recent series published by my colleague daniel which focuses on how to supercharge incremental development across the country and basically tries to answer this question okay strong towns is in favor of small-scale development for housing and commercial spaces how do we make that work on a big scale Like we don't want huge developers just taking over and doing whatever they want. We want local people doing what they know their community needs. But how do you make that happen when there are huge affordability challenges, when there are huge uh, lack of housing? So Daniel does a great job of helping to try to answer that question. He interviewed a ton of active small-scale developers for that series. So I'll link to that in our show notes. And that was published a couple of weeks ago. Finally, thank you to our members. Um, Tim Wright, an awesome example of a member who is just taking the Strong Towns message and running with it. We did a survey last year that showed um, that Strong Towns members were much more likely to be taking action in their community, whether that's you know getting out there and starting local groups and doing stuff on a large scale, or things like choosing who to vote for, um, deciding to attend a community meeting. Uh, consistently across the board, our members are more active than just regular readers of our stuff. Sort of the self-reinforcing cycle. You get hooked on Strong Towns, you're interested, and you decide to step up and be a financially supporting member, then you are plugged into this community of people who are also active members. And there's lots of resources for you. Um, There's lots of ways that we support you as a staff, and um, your fellow members will support you too. So Highly encourage you, if you are feeling amped by um, what Tim's doing and what members like him are doing all across the country, join us. Become a member. Visit strongtowns.org slash membership today to do that. Thank you so much, everyone. I'm looking forward to being back on a regular weekly podcasting schedule with you. So look forward to another new episode next week. Take care. Bye. Thank you.